Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff that we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And it's been a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. We're, on a, we're on the every other week plan, it seems like. It would appear so, yes. Um, but I think we'll be back on a regular schedule for the time, well, at least for a little bit. A little bit. Um, so what are, you, what are you even watching? Well, first off, we've got some announcements. Oh, let's do that first. Okay. Okay. Number one. Okay, hang on. There's a, there's a bunch of them. Number one. They're not ads. We they're don't not do ads, ads on right. the movie journal. We are advertising. Until someone pays us enough right. to do ads on the movie journal. Yeah, this is a... Uh, this is ad space, everyone. Just throwing that out there. Um, so, uh, number one, uh, and I've posted these on battleshipretention.com, so you don't have to worry about looking at, some, you know, typing in some other URL. Uh, David and I were on the podcast, uh, The Alien Minute. Yeah. Which goes minute by minute of the movie Alien and discusses them. So it's not uh, just a like, clever name. Hmm? It's is not it a, just a clever name. Is it a clever name? Alien uh, Minute? That was just a Wayne's World reference. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I don't remember that. You never saw see- Wayne's World? I did, but so many years ago, I don't really remember much about it. Uh, all right. Well, he the, he asked the uh, doorman who's playing tonight, and one of the bands is called <laughs> The Shitty Beatles. He says, <laughs> are they any good? Oh, they suck. So it's not just a clever name. <laughs> and uh, for a while, I was on a bar trivia team called The Shitty Beatles. <laughs> nice. That's fun. Uh, do you do trivia anymore? Uh, not with regularity. I used okay. to... There are, yeah, I used to go... There was a while I was going twice a week. I had a Monday and Tuesday regular. Um, or maybe it was Monday and Wednesday. Uh, it doesn't matter. And then I had a Sunday one that was regular for a little bit, but they stopped doing it, hmm. um, which was at uh, Bar One, kind of kind of close to your old place. Yeah, I've heard um, of that. Yeah, uh, but they stopped doing it on Sunday night. So now I just like my, my wife and I will do it uh, when we're... When we're free, we have certain spots. Yeah. We know what nights of the week, so uh, you know I drop in. But we don't. I don't do regular. I'm not on any regular teams anymore. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, we really enjoyed being on Alien Minute. We talk about I think minutes seventy five through uh, seventy nine, or maybe it's seventy six. Seventy six through eighty, maybe through eighty. I think. Yeah, I think that sounds. Um, and so that covers. Uh, Dal- uh, the very end of Dallas and the air shafts, and then. Uh, Ripley and Parker and Lambert and Ash trying to make a plan. Yeah. It's basically that. And, yeah. uh, and then a lot Ripley of and mother. Is, uh, yeah. They're at the yeah. tail end. Yeah. A lot of fun. You can find those at battleshipretention.com. I linked to them, uh, to the individual episodes, but yeah, I, I, that was, that turned out to be more fun than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> it, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, um, I wasn't sure either cause I'd never done one of these before. I'd yeah. heard about these minute podcasts. Um, uh, but, yeah, I should have known it would be fun because you and I can talk uh, at length about any movie, and um, we, as we have demonstrated with our commentaries, we love the Alien movies. Well, and that's and honestly, just the the minute by minute format is actually quite helpful when, like, because when you know, okay, I'm going to be talking about this sixty seconds for about ten to fifteen minutes. Yeah, there are mo- there are moments and little suddenly little looks and gestures take on like. Uh, larger proportions, and uh, yeah, it was. I, I really enjoyed it, a lot of fun. Okay, if you uh, have you thought about doing a, a minute podcast? Oh my, a minute podcast after that, absolutely. Yeah. But what what movie or movies did you think of? I got one leapt right to mind. I thought of Jaws, obviously. That would be a good one. You, um, would you do the whole Jaws franchise? <laughs> I don't think so. I feel like if you're going to do a franchise, and I think Alien, the Alien franchise would work if you were going to yeah. do that. Uh, but you know, Jaws. 
drops off precipitously yeah. after the first one and then just vanishes off into nowhere after the second one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what, what you, you've got something in mind clearly. Oh, you and I, I actually mentioned it to you. Um, it would take a long time because it's a very long movie, mm-hmm. but I want to do the cloud Atlas minute. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh boy. So if there are any people out there who might be interested in <laughs> entertaining <laughs> my yeah. notion of doing the cloud Atlas minute, uh, with me, and this is a semi-serious. Mm-hmm. I will probably not. I will probably not go through with this. Uh, but uh, now I am. I, this is me mailing it to myself. If anyone else wants to do a cloud out of this minute, they have to uh, get my permission first. Uh, now I've got a couple of ideas. We could do the eighty-eight minute minute, uh-huh. eighty-eight minutes minute, right? Or you could just call it that. Uh, and then time code. Time code would be a good one. Yeah, wouldn't that be fun? Because you've got. You could do got four things to talk you could about. Do four episodes a minute. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's fun. Oh, good God, that'd be terrifying. Um, okay, uh, other announcements, real quick. Um, one is uh, personal, which is uh, Alpha MegaCon is going to be this Saturday. This is very personal. To you. It's well, it's you're not going to be there, right? Certainly not to support it's just me. You, but it sounded like you were going to like come clean about something, guys. <laughs> Been meaning to get this off my chest. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be at There's Omega a thing Con. called Alpha Omega Con, and I love it. Um, yeah, so I'll be there. It's it is a it's a comic convention, uh, very small. Uh, you know, it's only in one. It's one location, one day, um, and it's going to be in Artesia, California. You go to alphaomegacon.com. Uh, I will have a booth there for more than one lesson, and I will be moderating a couple of panels that not, I didn't just moderate them i also came up with them and put them together and uh the first one is called rethinking horror which explores uh the the church's rather complicated relationship with uh horror uh and trying to find the good in it um and then the second one is called i think it's just called the philosophy of nolan's dark knight trilogy Mm. um in which we uh go through those and i i think i and actually and i rewatched dark Knight rises which we'll get into uh, okay. a little bit later but yeah so that's that will uh hopefully be a, a great deal of fun i've i've enjoyed these tremendously there's going to be a panel about voice acting which will feature uh, among others uh townsend coleman friend of the show oh um so yeah i'm i'm excited to go it's it's gotten bigger and bigger every year and it's just it's very much the kind of when i go to the international christian film festival I tend to feel very alone in uh-huh. my sensibilities. When I go to Alpha Omega Con, that's where I feel like it's more my people. So, um, okay. Sounds fun. And then lastly... What, what, what are the, what are the, what's the date again? That is the 24th. Oh, yeah. From 10 to 6, uh, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Okay. Uh, Artesia, California. You can find out more at alphaomegacon.com. Lastly. Okay. October 7th. Here's what we're doing. Okay. Uh... Our 500th episode of all time is just around the corner. Uh, we've actually done way more episodes than yeah. that. I actually did. I think we've done somewhere around. We will have done like 660, 665. Um, I'm surprised it's not more, but, honestly. Uh, yeah, but um, our um, Art 19 shows us how many episodes we have. And then I know there's oh. a little under 40 that aren't available right. there. Yeah, um, there are. So there. it was like, I think it was like 623. So I'm guessing by the time we get to episode 500, it'll be around 660, 665 right. um, uh, episodes. So, um, but it's 500 weeks um, of, of Battleship Retention. Um, and we're, we, we have, some, we have uh, a really fun thing planned for the podcast. Yes. 
but we're also going to do, if you're in the Los Angeles area on October 7th, um, we're going to do a sort of informal meetup. Um, this is not a sponsored meetup like our right. Comic-Con ones. We're not giving away free drinks. It's just, hey, we're going to be hanging out yeah. at the Tonga Hut in North Hollywood. Yeah. Um, which is a uh, cool um, tiki bar, uh, one of the oldest in the in Los Angeles County mm-hmm. um, tiki bars. It's on Burbank, um, just east of Coldwater. Yes. Is uh, it on Burbank or is it on Victory? Uh, it is on Victory, yes. Okay, just making sure. You know sure. why? Because I mentioned that bar, Bar 1, earlier. That's why it was, okay. which is on Burbank. Thank yeah. you for clarifying. Yes, it's on Victory, sorry, um, just east of Coldwater, yeah. uh, across from uh, the Cinemark Movie Theater. Yeah, so you yeah. can uh, stop by, talk to us, and then we'll all go to a movie afterwards. I'm not going to go. Probably not going to go. Um, so, uh, that, yeah, Friday, October 7th, uh, like I said, this is very informal. We haven't even set a time, like 8 or 9. Yeah, I'd say 8 or 9, and then we'll nine. be there for a little while. Yeah, so uh, come have a fun uh, tiki drink um, at, at the Tonga Hut with us. Uh, experience a piece of um, Los Angeles' tiki history. Sure. Uh, and say hi. So that'll be October 7th at the Tonga Hut. Absolutely. Not, don't, just to clarify, don't go to the Tonga Hut in Palm Springs. It's cool. That one has food. This one doesn't. Okay. But we won't be there because it's very far from where we are, where we live. It's all the way in Palm Springs. Even if I tried to go to both, I don't think I could in a way that would uh, be helpful to anybody. (laughs) Have you, I know you're a Palm Springs fan. I am a Palm Springs fan. Have you been to the Tonga Hut in Palm Springs? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think I've, uh. It's, I might have actually. Now that I think about it, I've been a newer, couple of times. How, you know, how new? Uh, I'm just saying it's newer than the because the one oh, okay. the one in Victory has been there since yeah. like the 1950s. So it's not like six months old or whatever. No, it's it's uh, it's a few years old, but it is owned by the same people. Um, but it's on the it's on the second floor. Has like an inside and outside area mm-hmm. and serves food. It's really cool. All right. Uh, that's not the one we're going to. The one we're going to is right. in the 50s uh, and is kind of kind of divey but still fun. Absolutely. Yeah, I love just like that. Battleship Pretension itself. Yeah, that's a good comparison. All right, all right. What have you seen? Well, uh, I'll go ahead and just start off with uh, the Dark Knight Rises, which I rewatched uh, to get ready for that panel, and uh, that thing's a mess. That thing is just. <laughs> it is probably my third time seeing it, and there are good things in it. There are great things in it. I would say there are nice. There are some nice sequences. There's there's some good character work here and there. Um, Thematically, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on as far as uh, the development of Batman's character uh, from the first film to this one. But man, oh man, from a from a story structure point of view, and I don't consider myself big on structure. Um, I'm usually willing to kind of just go with whatever a movie wants to do, and then does it sell me on that? And in this, I think maybe because it doesn't really sell me on that, I find myself noticing the structure and just that like, you know, I don't think a movie has to adhere to a three act structure uh, and the, this, it, it, there are definitely it acts. Hurt. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, once you start to stray from it, but you're making a big time genre film, that's probably not a great call. Um, but you know, uh, Selena Kyle played by Anne Hathaway is great. I like everything in regards to her. I do think that what Tom Hardy is doing as Bane is very, very interesting. Um, and I think he, you know, people make fun of his voice and that sort of thing. But to me, whoever was going to be the villain after the Joker really had their work cut out for him. Like it was going to be a difficult thing. 
And I think he manages to be a, a very distinct, imposing physical presence. And I think he recognized that like there is going to, he was going to need to do something with his voice, uh, to make him more than just this hulking thing. Mm-hmm. Cause that, which is what Bane always is always in danger of falling into. Um, and I think he, he really creates a, a very interesting character. And I feel like I like so much about Bane's plan to basically before destroying Gotham, just forcing it to turn completely on itself. Mm-hmm. I think that's a neat idea. I think the execution is not merely not, not Bane's execution. The screenwriter's execution, uh, leaves a lot to be desired, but, uh, but yeah, and there's, there's some good stuff in there. I think the music, uh, is solid. Uh, West Anthony is quick to say that Hans Zimmer does some of his best work, uh, or in some cases, some of his most experimental work, uh, in those films. And, uh, yeah. So, in some cases I came away thinking like, all right, there are some elements to this that really hold up and really do contribute to the larger trilogy. But man, oh man, I mean that thing just as a whole is, it's definitely, it's way less than the sum of its parts. There's no question about that. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, that thing's a mess. That's all I have to say. I mean, I said, I said more, but that's the best way to sum that movie up. Okay. Uh, I watched, a fantastic little horror movie that's on Blu-ray now, thanks to Scream Factory, um, from 1988, called Lady in White. Uh, and this is, uh, I say horror movie, but it really belongs to the subgenre um, of ghost story, okay. which is the kind, uh, a kind of horror movie that I really like. Yeah, I like a lot of different horror movies, but this one I really like because it is... Um, it's genuinely creepy and, and scary at parts, but it also feels like the kind of movie that you like the family could watch. If the kids are like, you know, 12 or, or, yeah. or older, you know, this is a, like a family horror movie. It feels honestly very much like something Stephen King might have written. Sure. Um, it takes place in a small town, much like Stephen King. It takes place, um, in the 1950s. Uh, again, feels like Stephen King. Yeah. Um, and, Basically, it has to do with um, this kid played by a young Lucas Haas is the star mm. of the movie. Um, he gets locked in the coat room at school as part of a prank. He's a little like gawky, you know, uh, awkward kid. Um, and get, they make they lock him uh, at night into the cloakroom at the mm-hmm. uh, in the classroom. So he's like stuck in there. And suddenly this he sees this ghost girl. Um, essentially reenacting the moments before her death in, in that same cloakroom. Um, and then the actual killer, not a ghost, the actual killer shows up in the cloakroom to cover his tracks. Oh boy. Um, and, uh, so basically this kid is just sort of following the clues to figure out what happened to this girl. It turns out there were other victims trying to figure out who this killer is because he couldn't see his face. It was dark. Um, and I don't want to go too much into the, into the story, but, uh, <coughs> it's to search a, for the killer. They have to go into the Amish community. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, no, uh, but, uh, it's a, it's a really, really cool and, uh, sweet, uh, sort of boyhood type of ghost story. That's great. Um, with, uh, an awesome cast, by the way, I mentioned Lucas Haas, um, 
his uh, the the lady in white mm-hmm. is uh, played by Catherine Hellman. Oh, okay. Um, Lucas Haas's dad is played by Alex Rocco. Hey, all right. And his dad's best friend is played by Lynn Carew. I like him a lot. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a really really cool movie. Uh, the Blu-ray looks awesome. Uh, and I also before we move on, I want to point out Alex Rocco, um, who passed away within the last year mm-hmm. or so. Uh, always been a great actor. Often played heavies, mobsters, yeah, guys. You know, here Alex Rocco's character is essentially the paragon of decency. Like he's he represents like everything that is good and like everything that Lucas Haas does right is because he has this great role model of a dad. It's such an awesome role for Alec Rocco. I'm trying um, to picture it and it sounds yeah, he's great. It's like a big sweet, is a sweet, like, so, um, when the killer tries to kill Lucas Haas, he, he can't see his mm-hmm. face. Um, oh yeah. There's also a, a subplot in the movie about the, the way that, you know, this idyllic 1950s American small town is also super racist, which is probably true of the time. Um, everyone's quick to, uh, blame the black janitor uh, at the school. And so the janitor gets, uh, arrested and it's a big, like people are protesting outside Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so, uh, Alex Rocco, who believes that this guy did not try to kill his son, um, offers the man's wife and children a ride home. Mm-hmm. so like that's how nice he is that this the man who everyone thinks tried to murder his son yeah he's gonna go ahead and give their family a ride home <laughs> which apparently um there's three versions on the um on the blu-ray theatrical director's cut and extended director's cut and apparently that scene of him driving the family home is not in the theatrical cut which mm. is too bad because uh, it's a to me it's it has nothing to do with the horror story but it's a major scene in the movie yeah. uh, anyway lady in white i would definitely recommend checking it out watch it with your um, not too young kids, uh, yeah. this Halloween. Yeah. That, you know, I feel like that's, uh, something that we should do an episode about at some point, uh, some October is the idea of the, the ghost story, you know, uh-huh. movies like the others. Yeah. Um, a recent example is Crimson Peak movies that definitely the Devil's backbone. Good, which I still uh, haven't seen. Oh, you should see it. Um, that's a good ghost story. But, uh, and, and of course there are, se- there are several others, but, um, you know, there's a there's a, a certain quality to them where they're definitely macabre and they're sometimes disturbing and they're eerie. They're not always a hundred percent scary. Yeah. But it I don't know, there's there's a certain I don't know, I take a certain degree of comfort in ghost stories, like in, in movies. Um but I guess you could consider something like the conjuring a ghost story, maybe. I, never I don't know. Saw it. But that's there's a demon quality to that, as opposed to just full on ghosts. I, I like that idea. Um, you still haven't seen Crimson Peak, have you? Yeah, I've seen Crimson Peak. You did see. Okay, you wouldn't. Right. You wouldn't watch that with your kids. That's a no, not that one. No, no. Very gory movie. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah. I don't. It doesn't strike me as that, but maybe I'm desensitized because we watched all those zombie movies recently. Um, yeah. Okay. So next for me, uh, most of these are going to be rewatches, everybody, by the way. So sorry about that. Next for me. I don't know why you're apologizing. It uh, makes no difference to them. Honestly, because I feel bad when I haven't seen that many new to me things. I don't think you should. Um, yeah, except here's the, here's the thing. This next one, I've talked a lot about it already. I rewatched okay. Bone Tomahawk. Oh, um, okay. Which, you know, sorry, um, everybody. Yeah. Here we go again. Yeah. It's the West. I get it. Uh, yeah. And I, and I won't say much about it simply because I've, I've spoken so much about it so recently. Um, 
Yeah, I do just, I just love this movie. I, I feel like, um, it's a really effective Western. I think it's a very, very effective horror movie, though it doesn't necessarily reveal itself to be a horror movie. Um, at least not overtly for a while. I think it has some tremendous performances. I think it's, uh, my favorite Kurt Russell performance. Richard Jenkins is, uh, marvelous at playing a character that in many ways could be seen as annoying. He could be seen as stupid, uh, as simple. He's kind of, you know, he's the old West deputy, like who's an older guy and, and the sheriff more than anything just kind of looks out for him. Um, but there's still a certain wisdom to him as well. And it's just a, I don't know, just great. Matthew Fox, who I believe you're a fan of, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, From Lost? Yeah. I'm a fan of Lost. Oh, okay. I, I don't think I've seen him that much else. I didn't see him in the um, the one where someone's trying to kill the president. And I didn't see him in the one where Tyler Perry is the action hero. <laughs> Alex Cross. Alex Cross. The one with the president. I know what you're talking about. I want to say Michael the, Douglas is in it. It's got a big, it's an ensemble. Yeah. Right? for the life I know the one you're talking about but for the life of me I just I feel like it has one of those super generic titles yeah it's like counterpoint or cross measures or <laughs> it's something like that right uh, cross stitch so um, alright you go on talking about Bone Tomahawk again oh I do go on <laughs> and I'll find um, out what the Matthew Fox Michael Douglas presidential session is Is Michael Douglas in it oh maybe he's is not is Forrest Whitaker in it I uh, he might be. Okay, well, you look at Matthew Fox ah, and you come back to me. I was really close. Okay, what is it? Vantage Point. Vantage Point. That's not... Yeah, there you go. But is Michael Douglas in it? No. This is a great cast, though. You got your Dennis Quaid. Okay. Forrest Whitaker. Matthew Fox. Bruce McGill. Edgar Ramirez. Saeed Tagmui. I've never known how to say his name, but an actor I like. Zoe Saldana. Sigourney Weaver. William Hurt is maybe who I was thinking of. Uh, maybe. Um, for Michael Douglas. James LeGro. And that might be all the, all the names. That's a, that's a hell of a Who directed cast. it? Uh, it's directed by Pete Travis. That name does not sound familiar. Well, you know him as the director of Dread. Hey, I do like that. Yeah. Suddenly, Vantage Point became a lot more interesting to me. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Matthew Fox turns in a really great performance um, as a, you know, for a while they had like an ad campaign for a bone tomahawk where, you know, they, they had like, you know, character posters. And so it said like, you know, the law, the deputy, you know, that sort of thing. And when it uh, had Matthew Fox, it said the armed gentleman uh, (laughs) to give you a general idea of the type of character he is. Um, it also has a very odd, not merely supporting cast. Like these are char- these are characters that are in one scene. Sean Young, oh, uh, I like Sean Young. I know she's not in it very much. James Tokan, who's always fun to see. Who do I? What do I know? He is the primarily is the principal from Back to the Future. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, uh, friend of the show, Fred Melamed, um, Sid Haig, David Arquette. Um, it's a it's it's just a really good. It's a good movie all around with great acting. I highly recommend it. And yeah, uh, see it if you get the opportunity. All right. That's Sean Young. I rewatched No Way Out not that long ago, mm-hmm. which is a great movie. Um, and she's so she's so great. And I, I don't mind saying incredibly sexy in that movie. Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I, I feel bad for um, Sean Young's career and the sort of 
Because I feel is, like there are a lot of stories about her. Yeah. Um, uh, I, 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 I don't know. I don't want to... I don't know. I don't want to denigrate her because I've uh, whenever she is in a movie, which seems uh, un, unfortunately pretty rare. Yeah, uh, I always like her. And you know, you, everyone, we all hear that story about her wanting to be Catwoman, mm-hmm. and as as great as Michelle Pfeiffer is, and I think she is genuinely great. Sean Young would have also been great. Yes. Yeah. She that would have been fun to see. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah. I'll throw it to you. Okay, uh, I watched a Criterion Blu-ray of a Kenzie Mizuguchi film called The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum, which if there's ever been a more Criterion <laughs> title for a movie, it, uh, I, I don't know what, a, what it might be. Uh, maybe uh, Psycho Symbiotaxiplasm or whatever that one's called. <laughs> um, anyway, The Story of the Last Chrysanthemum is uh, uh, a fascinating movie. I, I really, really like the films that I've seen of Kenzie Kenji Mizuguchi. I talked on a movie journal uh, over a year ago at this point about his, uh, the 47 Ronin, which is mm-hmm. a four hour samurai movie. Uh, that's mostly about samurai talking to one another nice. and not fighting. There's like one fight scene in the entire movie. Um, the story of the last chrysanthemum is, uh, a, it's a fascinating movie because I mean, it's 1939, I think. Um, and his, um, Mizuguchi's sense of, uh, technique and and framing not only framing the two-dimensional space of the frame itself but filling the real world space of the uh you know uh, the the amount of depth he gets in his uh, in his sets and stuff like that mm. um is really really fascinating there's one part where there's uh, a scene of a group of people at dinner at this sort of like after hours, like club slash, you know, uh, I don't know if you, a geisha house. I don't know if that's, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't say brothel. It's a geisha house, but they are eating dinners, men and women sitting around this, this table and they're on the second floor. Um, and, uh, and they're, and they're eating and they're talking and they're denigrating one of their coworkers. They're part of the cast and crew of a traveling theater troupe or mm-hmm. not a traveling, a actually well-respected, um, uh, long existing Tokyo theater troupe and they're denigrating one of their cast members. Um, and the whole shot you're watching, cause like I said, it's on the second floor of like an inner courtyard. And so there's an outside part and a, I guess a railing. Is that the word? If you've got a balcony, I said, <laughs> I'm going to go off on a tangent here. Okay. Try to figure out what the word is. If you have a balcony, right. Mm-hmm. And you've got the whatever the fixture is that goes around the outside of it. The whole thing is the railing, right? Not just the top row. Like uh, if it has bars, that's also part of the railing. Right? Yeah, I think so. Okay. So you've got a railing there. And so the shot you're seeing from outside through the railing. So you're mm-hmm. seeing these people eat, but you're seeing it through the railing. And it goes on for a while. And you're like, this is a weird framing for this shot. Um, and then after it goes on for a while, the camera you really you find out is on a on a track. It tracks to the left, and you see standing outside that room where all the people are is the person they're talking shit about. And you realize uh. that he's been standing there the whole time you were watching it through uh, through the the railing. Um, mm-hmm. There's all sorts of really cool um, little 
moves like that. Yeah, it's, it, that's almost POV without actually being POV. Yeah, yeah. It, um, and there, there's all sorts of great stuff. The, the story of the movie, uh, the story of the last chrysanthemum, uh, the story of the story of the last chrysanthemum is yeah. basically there's this theater troupe is very well respected, um, and the um, the guy who is the head of it, the patriarch or whatever you want to call it, the head of the uh, of the theater troupe has an adopted son and a uh, uh, natural son or whatever his adopted son is older and has been groomed to take his place for a long time but everyone knows he's a bad actor mm-hmm. um and so um basically he also falls in love with a geisha which is um not uh looked upon well so he runs off elopes with the geisha uh and changes his name and um dedicates his life to becoming uh a good enough actor to go back to his adopted father mm. um and have the respect to not only be welcomed back into the family and the troop but also to marry the person he wants to marry mm-hmm. and so it's like a two and a half hour movie about a guy a guy a guy trying to become a better actor, but it's really more about um the way like it's it's a an insight into uh, a culture that is different from mine mm-hmm. um where the you're standing in your family and your surname what your surname represents has to come first before everything like he's in love with this woman and she's in love with him but he can't just say like i think i would and i think most western movies would like let's just run off together or you know my family doesn't approve of us, uh, you know, love conquers all or whatever. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that is saying, no, in this society, at least at this time, um, love does not conquer all. He has to be just as concerned with um, what his father thinks of him. Uh, and the woman that he's in love with understands that. And, in, uh, and it, as the movie goes on, actually, she kind of takes on more of a lead role where you where you see increasingly like how much she is sacrificing of her life for in order for him to achieve, uh, these things he set out to achieve. It's a, it's a really, really great movie. Hmm. Uh, and that is available now. I uh, think, I think so. Yeah. I, my review hasn't gone up. If, if all goes well, my review will go up tomorrow, but it'll probably be next week. Um, uh, by the way, I, you have more movies to talk about this week than I do, but that's only because one of them I've seen them under embargo. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. I'm embargoed. Yeah. Now, why, what does that mean, embargo? Like, what does that entail? Oh, I've seen a movie uh-huh. that you, if you're listening, probably haven't seen yet. Yeah, but why did, why, how did that happen? Oh, I got to go to one of those press screenings. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Um, <laughs> but it's, that bit it's very impressive. It's almost six years old. We should probably <laughs> stop doing it now. It's no longer... No, the, I, I like this new one, though, just where you're really steering into it. Uh, and just uh, the guy who's being as falsely modest as he, <laughs> as he can and just begging someone to ask him. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. Sticking with the, uh, criterion Blu-rays that I, uh, that we have watched and, uh, this, I need to actually write a review for. I saw Carol Reed's night train to Munich, uh, That's which exciting. is, a, which is a film that I really liked. Um, at times I loved, uh, it's, I'll say this, uh, 
A lot of people, when they talk about the third man, which I'd say is Carol Reed's uh, big claim to fame. I know he also did uh, Oliver. He's done a number of other films, but uh, but third man is the one that film nerds tend to really focus on, which is understandable. It's a marvelous film. Um, but the visual quality of the third man has led a number of people to... You know, there's. it's not even so much a conspiracy theory. It's not even really a hypothesis. It's more just a thing that's put out there that Orson Welles' involvement with that film and then the visual quality of, the, of that film, which does t- kind of evoke what we know Orson Welles as a filmmaker right. to be. Uh, there are a lot of suggestions that maybe he was more of a creative force behind it than, uh, than a, being a mere actor. And that maybe he was the real, not the real director of it, but in the same way that people talk about Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg with poltergeist, mm-hmm. um, where it feels very Spielbergian, but he's not the official director. Yeah. Um, and so, but what I will say is having recently watched Oliver and now definitely watching night train to Munich, which came out in 1940, um, Carol Reed definitely does have a very specific visual style, uh, that really lends itself to noir. It really lends itself to the spy genre, anything where there's, you know, complexity, uh, in the story and that he will try to, um, He'll try to represent that visually. Um, I feel like Night Train to Munich and definitely Third Man. There's a heavy, heavy influence of uh, German expressionism, um, and it was just—it was really a pleasure to see. Uh, Night Train to Munich is a much more straightforward film than uh, the Third Man, but it's you know intrigue and, and it's fun. It's very tongue in cheek. You know the uh, the the main character is played by you know Rex Harrison, who's shown himself to be like. Uh, an amazing cat. I only recently saw, uh, my fair lady. Mm. Um, and it's just, it's, it's this thing of, it's a film that in many ways, I feel like you could watch it the same night as to be or not to be. Now this is not officially a comedy, but there's a lot of comedic elements in it just as to be or not to be is a comedy with a lot of dramatic, dramatic mm-hmm. elements in it. So if you put these two movies together, they actually fit really well with each other. Um, and it's just, you know, the, the story is uh, this young woman and her father make it out of Nazi-occupied, I think it's Czechoslovakia, but I'm not 100% on that. Um, and they, they make it to London only to have the Nazis, like, trick them into taking them back uh, to Czechoslovakia because this woman's father is, like, a very important scientist and they want him. Uh, and then Rex Harrison plays the guy who's going to go undercover as a Nazi and get them back. And so there's all this back and forth and... Uh, and it's just, it's tremendous fun. Uh, there is also an element, and maybe you can, maybe you can speak to this. Okay. There are movies, there are war movies made in the 1940s, the early 1940s, you know, that portray Nazis as the villains, but everything, everything feels a little bit, not playful, but it, it definitely falls into standard genre stuff. Because people don't know about the Holocaust yet. Right. As opposed to let's go with something like the third man where the, just the crumbling decaying nature of Europe itself. It's not merely war torn. It's, it's, it's not the, you know, that's a film not merely impacted by the, the practical realities of war, but also the, in this case, the metaphysical, the emotional, uh, the moral, implications of this particular war. And so I feel like if you watch night train to Munich 
which was made in 1940, and you watch the third man, which I believe was 49, um, you see a difference in what we knew mm-hmm. and how that will inform the same filmmaker and the movies that he makes. Um, so yeah, uh, Night, Night Train to Munich does sort of suffer from a really good, uh, a, a good climax uh, in theory, but one that in practice doesn't really work out and it's not quite as thrilling as it could be or should be, but it's still a very interesting movie. I was very happy. I saw it. Um, and I feel like at this point I I'm comfortable saying that Carol Reed is a very solid, dependable filmmaker and I should watch more of his films. Okay. Tyler and listeners. Okay. I'm so excited to tell you okay. about this, this little, uh, new little movie that I saw called Miss Stevens directed by Julia Hart. Um, and starring Lily Rabe, whom I know from the American Horror Story uh, series. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what else uh, you might know her from. Um, do you know who Lily Rabe? The name sounds familiar, okay. but I don't know. Um, it it is a like I said, it's a, it's a it's a small movie. It's it, you know not in a lot of theaters, not getting a lot of press, and also I just mean it's its goals are small in the sense of being intimate, but it achieves emotions that are sweeping and beautiful and really wonderful and moving. This is absolutely one of the best movies I've seen, uh, this year. Um, the story Lily Ray plays a, um, an high school English teacher, uh, at a school that, um, has, um, all but no arts funding at all. And so there's three kids who want to go to this weekend long, um, drama company like monologue competition the kind of thing that you maybe would have won an award for um well i didn't win an award for one monologue what i won an award for was an entire performance an entire well-crafted mm-hmm. performance in a one-act play okay actually it's just the first act of a longer play but it's fine it's fine um it's, but you, you get speaking of bits the, that have gotten sort, old the sort of thing yeah um <laughs> Uh, and so Lily Ray uh, volunteers to be the chaperone for the weekend, to drive these three kids, to stay in the hotel and just look over them, uh, look after them for uh, a weekend. Um, and one of the kids is um, maybe uh, they never put in uh, a, a name to it, but um, maybe is uh, manic depressive, perhaps. Mm. Um, and it's. It's it's pretty much Lily Rabe's movie, but this other kid um, who, um, and now I'm drawing a blank. Uh, I also know him from a TV show. He was um, the vice president's son on Homeland. Oh, okay, uh, which I don't think you. Uh, I do not watch. Watched, watched. Um, or yeah, I keep forgetting that show's still on. Um, Timothy Chalamet is his name. He's great too, but it also has a um, substantial supporting part from Rob Hubel. Okay. Um, and a uh, small but worthwhile supporting role from Oscar Nunez. All right. Uh, but basically, it's a, to me, the movies, uh, it just sort of is one of those takes place over the course of weekend movies. I, I don't need to go into any more like plot detail than I've already gone into. Uh, but the lesson, or the, um, uh, that makes it sound strident when I say it has a lesson. Um, what I took away from the movie is this idea, this illustration of the idea that on the one hand, becoming an adult doesn't suddenly mean you have solutions to problems. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and also not being adult doesn't mean that your problems are less important or less impactful. Basically everything's a mess for everyone all the time, but as long as we have one another to lean on, we can get through things and become better people. I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Hmm. This is what I'm talking about. It's just a simple idea, but it's illustrated so beautifully, um, in, uh, Julia Hart's direction. And, um, uh, she co-wrote the screenplay with someone else. Uh, and in Lily Rabe's fantastic performance, um, I really can't recommend this movie highly enough. That's great. Yeah. And that's I, uh, thematically, that's such an interesting idea. Uh, because you, you so often hear this, uh, this notion that, you know, people grow up and they, and they suddenly gain a certain perspective, which is, Oh my gosh, my parents didn't have it all figured out. And, and I certainly don't have it all figured out. And, but one thing that I don't think is ever said either in movies or in real life is this idea that yes, you don't have it figured out. And there are some problems that just cause you're, you know, just cause I'm 34 uh-huh. and you are recently 34. I congratulations. 34 now, thank you. Um, I made it, uh, whew, <laughs> just by the skin of your teeth. Uh-huh. Uh, but, uh, you know, just because we are in our thirties now, that doesn't mean that when a problem comes up, we are, we just somehow know how to handle it. Yeah. But it also, were we completely alone, that would be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And it can be a big deal sometimes. But like, you and I are both married. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have friends. We have coworkers. We have parents. Uh, not as many as we used to. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Together, you and I have parents. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, you know... Um, you come to realize like, Oh no, that's what life actually is. It's like, these are problems that yes, you can feel very alone, but most of the time, not always, but most of the time you're not actually as alone as you feel. And all it really takes is to reach out. And even if that person can't help you practically, they can definitely help you emotionally. And that, and part of adulthood means acknowledging how much of a resource emotionally and practically everybody around you is and taking advantage of that. Um, I don't mean to say I, take advantage of people. No. <laughs> uh, before we move on, one other thing I will point out about Miss Stevens uh, that um, you might appreciate uh, is as a former high school drama kid, yeah. there's a couple of little things it gets right, including one of the kids, um, the monologue he's doing is by Christopher Durang. And oh, yeah. I was, there are, within every drama club, it, the high school over, there is a subset of kids who become obsessed with Christopher Durang yeah. because it's the first time they've been um, really exposed to like postmodernism in the raw yeah. and it feels smarter than everything else. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that it's not, I still have a lot of respect for Christopher Durang, but sure. there are, yeah, there are a lot of high school sophomores and juniors who were just stumbling across Christopher Durang and are obsessed. And that's sure. exactly who I was. Uh, so I thought that was a nice, a little touch I liked. Uh, who was, okay. So Christopher Durang, remind me who he was. Was he actor's nightmare? Um, or is that David Ives? Uh, no, Actors Nightmare is Christopher Durang. Okay. Right? Yeah. But he, he also did the, um, no, I can't remember what it was called. A Certain Number of Characters in Search uh, of an Author? Is uh, that? Him? No, that's another person. All that's someone else? Okay. Entirely, uh, entirely, I think. No, um, the one I first remember is he did a parody of The Glass Menagerie. Okay. I don't know if you read that. I did not. Um, uh, and it's, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but instead of, um, 
a glass menagerie. The girl has a collection of swizzle sticks, <laughs> and I know, like the swizzle sticks are a big part of the of the storyline. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, yeah, and David, if you go back to like look at his like original cast, like he was putting these plays on at Yale when Meryl Streep was a student at Yale, and like wow. Meryl Streep was doing Christopher Durang like first. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. The uh, you mentioned those those competitions, you uh-huh. know, uh, the, uh, so along with, yes, the, that best actor award, uh, the only time I ever did well at one of those competitions is when our friend Matt Bennett and I, we went and did like a, a duet. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never did well. Like we just, f- he and I always did fine, but you know, the, the, the things that we picked, the judges just had no patience for. Um, until we did a, a David Ives uh-huh. thing called Variations on the Death of Trotsky. Yep, that's and, a good one. Uh, and yeah, and that one is what won us uh, a first place, which was great. But uh, it took us a long time to get there. Yeah. Yeah, the David Ives thing, um, the, that collection of short plays is called It's All in the Timing. Yeah. If you, uh, I've seen them done separately, but I did see a, uh, a school, uh, like a college drama um presentation of the as as an evening like doing all six of them as an evening yeah uh it's it's really really cool when done when i'm done sure right i think david ives is a little more um i don't know what's what i'm looking for um maybe a little more precious than christopher durang um, um they're both like, pretty precious yeah i guess they are both pretty precious but i guess um but maybe we're just thinking okay. about that only be, solely because we came upon them at a time when they were so precious to us. Yeah. You know, uh, here's what I'll say. Uh, and I don't, cause I do like David Ives, but let's say you're looking for a night of one X to mm-hmm. go to with your mom. Okay. And your choices are one X by Christopher Durang and one X by, uh, David Ives. I feel like you're probably going to pick David Ives because there's less of a chance that something is going to be, um, either morally or just uh, conventionally offensive. Yeah, I I think that's that's true. Not that David Ives is like the most accessible guy, but I do think that yeah, Christopher Durang is probably more likely. It could sometimes uh, get uh, blue in a yeah. way, but still in a smart way. Yeah, and I feel like there's just an element that I think either way. And I feel like our moms are probably a bit more savvy than most, but at sure. the same time, let's just think of moms right yeah i think either one the mom's gonna be like what is this uh you know but that's just yeah. that's well, yeah that's, there's that's definitely 16 yeah. year old me thinking i'm better than adults we're talking about variations on death of trotsky which is not hard to follow but then there's also have you ever seen or read or tried to read um philip glass buys a loaf of bread which is a david Ives short that, yeah uh, that one's insane um yeah. but um well, and, I was going to say, and there's even a, there's a moment in variations of the, on the death of Trotsky where, you know, first off, he's got a mountain climbers ax in his head the yeah, whole time. Yep. But then also, you know, in, in all these different, in the very last one, you actually have a moment where he's like reflecting on what it means to die. And he says, he goes, Oh, I'll never get to see Casablanca, which I would have hated anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just like, it's like, so he's reflecting on something he's reflecting on stuff he doesn't know about and doesn't exist yet. Yeah. And then, I don't know, it's, there's an element to that play that I think is great. 
Um, all right, we should move on. Yeah, one sorry. of my favorite Christopher Drang lines, though, that I think of, uh, and this is not one of his more mindfuckery, mindfucky ones. It's just something that I always find very funny and think of all the time, actually, mm-hmm. which is uh, a woman is giving a tour of her home and she says, this is the kitchen where we keep all the kitsch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, I could see that being your favorite thing of all time. Uh, okay, uh, is my turn? Yeah, I think okay. so. Yeah. I saw... Um, Went to one of those critic screenings people have always been have been talking about, uh, and I saw a movie called Operation Avalanche, and this is a movie that is it officially it's a mockumentary, but it also definitely has a feeling of found footage, uh, and it is it, it toys with that idea that uh, the moon landing was faked, um, that uh, NASA and the CIA realized that we needed just for optics we need to beat the Russians to the moon. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's all about the, the realization of that. And then, uh, the, the fruition of these, these young guys who are like ambitious, they're working in the, within the CIA. And so, you know, you see them working, you know, realizing things here and there, like there's a guy running around like in a desert, like in the spacesuit, And then he realizes like, eh, this doesn't look right. Even if we, even if we, uh, you know, uh, shoot it in a very specific way. Even if we like do stuff to the, the, the negative, like it's just not going to work. So, you know, and then they incorporate these other elements of like the conspiracy theory where they actually go to the set of 2001 a space odyssey mm-hmm. and like get some tips from Kubrick on whether he doesn't know what it is that they're doing, but they get some, they kind of steal some ideas from him. And so, uh, and all of that is fun. You know, when the film is, is comedic, I think that's when it's at its best. Um, there are elements of drama, there are elements of thriller, uh, in there, but, uh, but it's at its best when it's, when it's having a good time. Uh, but then after a while, uh, the plot reasserts itself and they realize that, oh, this work, this, this only works if, uh, the least number of people know about it. And, uh, the CIA, the higher ups at the CIA decide like they want to go after, uh, uh, these these CIA filmmakers, and so uh, that's when it that's when the story really kicks in. And there are some nice thriller elements. Um, and there's a moment where a character is revealed to be dead, and it's actually uh, fairly poignant. Um, but I think where the where the film really, I mean, it's it's honestly just the way the film ends is such a nothing. It's just like. You know, for me, the the obviously for so many reasons, the the gold standard is Blair Witch Project, and that ends on a very abrupt mm-hmm. and a very ambiguous note, as it should, given not merely the story but also the way the story is being told. Whereas this is not merely found footage, but this is also a mockumentary, which means somebody has made the choice to make this film to to have this film end this way. Uh, in, okay. in the, in the reality of the film. Okay. Um, and so it just cuts off and it's, it's ambiguous, but not in a way that I think it's, is good. It's ambiguous because I think they just didn't know how to end this thing. And I think that's the problem. I think they clearly were the, I think the, the makers of the, the real movie, I think they 
were really wrapped up in, okay, how, what can we, how can we use, you know, what cameras can we use to really make it seem like it's the 1960s? What can we do here? Uh, and then I think when it came time to make an actual movie with an actual story and character development and all that, I think they just completely got lost and it's just a, and it's a bummer because for a good portion of the movie, it's actually quite enjoyable, but probably the last 20 minutes is where it really becomes like, Oh, no, thank you. All right. Uh, I saw a movie I'd been very much looking forward to, and I'd say uh, it, for, for the most part, did not disappoint. It was a, a, a rousing time at the uh, uh, at the theater, I guess. I saw Antoine Fuqua's The Magnificent Seven. Oh! Um, uh, which I'm looking forward to, despite it, the reviews. Yeah, I, I, but some, I mean, the reviews, it uh, depends on who you're reading, because I think some people are, or whom you're reading, uh, I think some people are getting it getting it right. Um, it is, uh, I, I do think of Antoine Foucault as a very, um, skilled craftsman in terms of just, uh, putting together uh, a movie and, um, putting together uh, a big action scene. Cause that's what, uh, if you know the story, that's what everything is building towards. There are obvious, mm-hmm. there are action scenes throughout, but it's building toward a huge battle. Yeah. You know, these seven guys plus the townspeople they've trained against about like 200, uh, yeah. guys who were coming to the town. Um, and I think he, for the most part, stages that, uh, very well. I did find myself thinking, um, that, uh, reflecting on the fact that even though the two movies couldn't be more different in terms of their, uh, setting and subgenre or whatever, but thinking like Joss Whedon's good at this, mm-hmm. like in both the Avengers movies, he, he stages huge battles that take place over a, you know, uh, a spread out area yeah, and manages to not just, I think most, you know, um, recent sort of action movies are just sort of like bombard you with the action or stuff. Like Joss Whedon finds little stories within the, yeah. uh, within the, the battle. And Antoine Foucault does that uh, as well. Um, but I did find myself thinking, I, I wonder what choices Joss Whedon would have made. Yeah. that might've made this a, a little, have a little more character to it. Any, in any case, that's that's a, a, a nitpick because I really did like the movie overall. I give it a solid B. Um, uh, and uh, it is, I mean, I it, it's an, another case of, uh, another example of uh, you really can get away with a lot of violence and still be a PG-13 movie. Oh, is it PG-13? Yeah, and it is violent. Oh, I'm sure, yeah, yeah I'm sure it is. I mean, it, people are getting killed constantly uh shot at point blank range and getting stabbed and getting all sorts of it's uh it's a very violent movie people get blowed up yeah um uh but it's it's stirring it's rousing it's not uh it's um it has a some some sense of fun to it uh i think with chris pratt being Mm -hmm. the um the second fiddle um but it's really more of an antoine fuqua denzel type of movie which is uh you could do a lot worse than that yeah uh, but uh, but you know it's uh, it's serious it's uh stone-faced a lot of the time and the script was co-written by nick pizzolato who did the true detective right and so there's definitely a lot of that um uh broody sort of uh dialogue which when done right is up up my up my alley but not pop philosophy but there is some sort of it's more I, i in my uh, I tweeted about it. I compared it to being sort of like old Testament ish okay. in the sense that it's like it, 
its view of wrath and vengeance mm. as being net positives, you know, like sure. as long as you're on the right side, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a sort of, uh, a, it, it has a morality that I tend to equate more with the old Testament. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, um, like there's, there's one character who like, we think, Oh no, is he, he's one of the seven, but he might be, a bit of a coward. But yeah. in the end, he proves himself to not be a, bu- a coward because he kills a bunch of people, but they're yeah. the right people. So, uh, but it, what I'm, this is, have you ever I, seen the original? Uh, I never have. Okay. But this is going to get me back to talking about shooter, right? Okay. Which is an Antoine Fuqua film that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's a difference between a movie having, uh, like being morally questionable because it's not thinking about it, which is something that I think happens in like Michael Bay movies sure. a lot. Like not thinking about the implications of what the characters are doing, just like saying, well, they're good. They're doing good things. Um, and there's movies like shooter. And I think this as well, which understand that what the characters are doing is, is great. It's not making the movie about that. It's kind of leaving that up to the viewer. I think mm-hmm. um, it's still generally being heroic, um, but it does, it, it does understand that they're, possibly putting some of their souls on the line. Yeah. Um, doing this. I, uh, and I think some people will disagree with me because of the fact that Antoine Fuqua doesn't lean on that, mm. but I do think it's there. Uh, and I find that to be very enjoyable. And it's also, I mean, it's another case, uh, another example, uh, another piece of evidence in my case that Denzel Washington should have been higher on our top 25 <laughs> actors list. Every time I see him on screen, even if it's some in something that I've seen before, I mean, he I, to me he almost rivals Jimmy Stewart in ease in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Like he is just he could be playing an incredibly intense character, or actually a laid back character, whatever it is. Like he is just he's surprisingly in the moment. Uh, but not, but not in the moment, like like jittery, the way some actors are. Uh, he's just right at ease in front of the and camera. That ease, what it allows him is to do because he's in a lot of movies that tread familiar ground. This one's yeah. a remake, remake. But Denzel Washington gets he's able to do things you've seen actors do a million times and do them fresh. Mm-hmm. Like I'll give you an example without trying to give too much of the uh, away. But you know, the, there's a scene that you've seen in every other action, like every second action movie you've seen for your entire life has some variation of this scene where the bad guy is about, has gotten the drop on the good guy. is about to shoot the good guy. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh no. Right. And then the gun goes off and you think, Oh no, our good guy's been shot, but no, it turns out there was a second heretofore unseen good guy who shot the bad guy at the last minute. Wow. People still do that. It's in every, every movie. Um, and yet, Denzel as the he plays the first good guy the one who almost yeah. gets killed in the situation his reaction is what like is one that I have never seen I was like oh just in like the little thing that he did with his eyes and his head there I've never seen an actor play that scene that we've seen a million times that way yeah it's just he can take familiar stuff often entire movies and make it feel fresh which speaks again him being in the moment and him feeling just recognizing that like the character doesn't have anything to prove. The character doesn't know that he's in something that we've seen a million times before. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, I, I, I'm still going to see it. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. I, I just said everyone should see yeah. it. So I am all for people seeing it. Um, the, 
the the rest of the cast is great. Chris Pratt is good. I'm a big Ethan Hawke fan from way back. Um, Vincent D'Onofrio is um, <laughs> off his rocker um, yeah. in a in a good way. He's who I'm excited about. Um, and then there's um, this actor. I don't know that much about him, but I know people who are into um, Korean films a little more uh, know this guy, uh, Byung Hun Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, he's fantastic. He plays Billy Rocks, who's the knife guy. Ah, uh, yes. Um, yeah. Played by uh, the knife guy. I think the knife guy was James Coburn in the original. Okay. So, uh, who uh, did not play, uh, who is not Asian. But. No, no. Uh, yeah, but he, he's fantastic. Do you feel, here's, here's the thought that I had, and, you know, and I, I, I don't think this is an unfair thought to have, uh, just in regards, uh, you know, of, of casting, is that, you know, this is a much more diverse cast, which there's nothing wrong with, except that, there are four people I've heard of and that, 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 and I'd say there are four people, there are four of the seven that, a, that a larger audience recognizes, mm-hmm. which I feel like will invariably cause the audience to, uh, not think less of the other three, but like this, like this, this actor that you're talking about, it's not his fault that he's not known to a larger audience and something like this hopefully will help with that. But at the same time, I just found myself thinking like when I, Oh, hang on. Cause I was going to say, when I see the original magnificent seven, I think like, Oh, I, Oh, there's Charles Bronson. There's James Coburn. There's Robert Vaughn. But at the same time, I know who they are now. Right. It's long enough ago that maybe they were also no names as well. So I don't think so. I think they, I think part of the thing of Magnificent seven, the original, the John Sturgis one was, yeah, we're getting together all these actors who would normally be headlining their own movies. Um, but I see, I see it the opposite. I see it as like putting these, uh, actors that are less known to American audiences. And you're talking about, well, you've got, I mean, are they given like oh, a chance only, to shine? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, only three of the seven are white. You've got Ethan Hawke, Chris Pratt, and Vincent D'Onofrio. Right. Um, so you've already got a black lead. Yeah. Uh, and this is Denzel Washington's first Western. I didn't realize that, but I read that. Um, it seems like he should have done one by now. It does seem, um, yes. But uh, but then you've got um, Byung Hung Lee. Uh, you've got... Um, uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo uh, plays the Mexican character who mm-hmm. I'd say they get a chance to shine, but his thing is pretty much that he's the Mexican guy. Okay. Uh, and you've got uh, Martin Sensmeyer um, who is native American, I think um, yeah. playing uh, the native American character whose name is red harvest, which is kind of like, I feel like it's an in joke about ripping off Kurosawa. Well, it's yeah, there's so many layers to that. <laughs> it's a very layered that's, joke. That's that's like that's four layers down, I think. This is a yeah. remake to Magnificent 7 which was inspired by uh 7 Samurai, which was inspired by other westerns. But he was also inspired but his other but film Yojimbo, which was inspired yeah. by uh Red, uh Red Harvest. Ugh. Yeah. So it's a Kurosawa joke that you I guess kind of have to really know. Yeah. As friend of the show Jimmy Pardo would say, I'm winded yeah. <laughs> uh, from from those references. Uh and then I forgot to mention also, um well there's a there's a role at the beginning that I didn't know uh the actor was in, so I don't know if it's supposed to be a surprise, so I won't say. But the bad guy is played by Peter Sarsgaard, yeah. who is an actor that I like a lot here. He is laying it on thick nothing wrong He's with that really hamming it up the original is uh, played by eli wallach you gotta right. work hard yeah. to, to match him uh yeah but I, I do think i mean peter sarsgaard does he accomplishes the task of making you hate this character yeah. which is what, kind of what you need you need to really hate him 
uh, and he does that, but um, there's not, yeah, not a lot of shading to the performance. I should specify, by the way, that I, having a diverse cast doesn't bother me. It more has to do with just general levels of fame. And I feel like you're, there, there's a potential that the audience will care less about these other characters simply because they don't have much investment in the performers. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I think we're a couple of white guys. I think the... Uh, Latino audience might care more about sure. Manuel Garcia Rufo's sure. character um, or be uh, invested like by, more. Like in by default or because they're more familiar with his work? Um, maybe because of both. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know much about, um, I don't know much about history. Uh, don't know much geology. Mm. I don't know much about science books. Yeah. What about the French you took? Nothing about that. <laughs> oh, but hang on. Where are we headed now? Because uh, I know who you're talking uh, yeah, to. Yeah, I'm going to start t- texting my wife now. <laughs> um, all right. That's The Magnificent Seven. I recommend it. All right. Very exciting. Um, all right. So let's see. Uh, okay. So um, I saw for my f- uh, the first time on the big screen, um, there was a night. Have you ever had this where there was a night that I had work to do? In fact, I had a lot of stuff to do, but I was in a very specific mood and I thought, I'm going to go see a movie. That's what I'm doing today. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and I was actually going to go see Kubo and the Two Strings, but Jen said she wanted to see that. And so since I was going to go alone, I saw at the Century 8, I saw Dr. Strangelove. Oh, cool. Um, uh, Fathom Events was doing that. I do like what Fathom Events does. They, they do release, you know. They'll do stuff like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which ha- which people know they grew up with. Doctor Strangelove is not that, and um, but I was excited to see it. I haven't seen it in a while. I never saw it on the big screen, and you know uh, it was hardly a full theater. But uh, it's a movie that I found myself occasionally getting a little bit listless. But that might have been because I was, fam- you know, considering how much of the film is is expository mm-hmm. just kind of setting up the situation i found myself just being like okay all right let's yeah okay let's get to it you know but obviously that's that's dumb on my part that's part to me one of the brilliant things about the film is how patient it is um before things really start to get crazy and i tell you what struck me this time because i've seen this movie so many times at this point that uh, it doesn't throw me a lot of curveballs, but maybe because I saw it on the big screen, the character of Dr. Strangelove, maybe for the first time ever, really struck me as completely batshit crazy. <laughs> I knew he was crazy already. I already know about that crazy arm, but just where he, where he comes, you know, when he first shows up, you know, it's, it's probably about an hour or more into the film. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, because we've really been setting things up. Uh, and then he shows up and it's just like, and the stuff with the arm and the crazy voice. And then the way the film ends, as, as you know, there's all this stuff about a mind shaft gap. George C. Scott, obviously marvelous. Uh, I think I actually paid a lot more attention to Sterling Hayden this time as well. Yeah. And really enjoying him. But, uh, but that moment where in the midst of this argument, Dr. Strangelove has a suggestion and he stands out of his wheelchair, not realizing what has happened. Uh-huh. And then after a moment says, mine Fuhrer, I can walk. And then there's just like a couple of baby steps. And then the movie's over <laughs> because everyone starts blowing up. Uh-huh. That is so crazy to me. And so 
It's better than the pie fight ending that oh, we would sure. have gotten. Oh, sure. Right? Yeah, because it's such a there, – there's such a, a manic, oddball quality to it that I can't even – I don't know. I, I can't even comprehend what Stanley Kubrick was, was – not merely what he was trying to do, but what he actually did. Um, it's such a stroke of genius – uh, as so much of that film is, um, you know, every time Jack Ripper is talking about our precious bodily fluids, I think I forgot how often he says that. Yeah. And, and I tell you what else, uh, I also really came to value Peter Sellers as Lionel Mandrake, the, the British, the, the guy who's with Ripper, uh-huh. you know, yeah. cause the president is somebody I latched onto early on. Cause he's got that wonderful phone call with the, with premier kiss off. Um, and then strange love is a lot of fun and is very over the top and all that. But there's something about this very, this mealy mouth British guy who's trying his best to kind of get out of a bad situation. And, uh, and there, there's just, and, and Peter Sellers, though he is British, he clearly is choosing to be more British uh-huh. uh, as Lionel Mandrake, eh, because it is sort of uh, eh, yes, and that and just talks like that, uh-huh. and uh, and it's a really, but he's also doing some really subtle things with that character. Um, it's a, it's a, I mean, obviously, it's a great movie. It's one of the yeah. best movies of all time. Some people would say it's the best comedy of all time, and those people are correct. Oh. Uh, those people are our listeners, by the way. Is what oh, I'm right, right, right. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I was very happy I saw it on the big screen and. There was a moment when I thought, like, you know, I'm spending the money. I've seen Doctor Strangelove. Why don't I just go see something I haven't seen? And then I see the movie, and I think, why do I ever think that? Uh-huh. If you have the opportunity to see a movie on the big screen that you love and that you previously have only seen in your home, see it on the big screen. It's absolutely worth it. The scene where Slim Pickens is is writing that bomb, uh-huh. you've never. Re- I've, I felt like I'd never really seen it when you realize when it's taking up the whole screen in front of you. It's mar- it's marvelous. Well, now I gotta put that on my list to do list. Yeah, see Doctor Strange. I'm sure it'll show up here at some um, point again. Yeah, I'm, but I am actually pretty bad about that. I'm, like, I will often choose to see something I haven't seen yeah. before. And if Jen, honestly, if Jen, I haven't said, seen a lot of movies. What was that? I haven't seen a lot of movies. Such as? as we learned last week, I've seen very few Barbara Stanwyck movies. Yeah, which people seem to have a big fucking deal, you know, a big problem with. Sorry, I will say, everyone. by my count, I've seen one more than you, right? Yes, I think so. Right. You've seen 100% more Barbara Stanwyck <laughs> films than me. Um, okay, go on. I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, we should, yeah, sorry. We're going really slow on this. Next up for me, I saw uh, another movie I was very excited to see, the new Pedro Amadovar film, Julieta. Mm-hmm. And it uh, more than uh, lived up to my expectations. I love Pedro Almodovar. Um, this is not him in sort of, um, you know, big, broad, uh, uh, occasionally surrealist uh, mode. This is a pretty straightforward story, although, I mean, it's not straightforward um, chronologically. It does jump back and forth. But there's a woman named Julieta who, at the beginning of the movie, is... Um, about to, um, I don't need to go into too much of the plot. She's about to leave with her move, uh, move out of Madrid with her boyfriend. Then she runs into someone she hasn't seen in 12 years. And, um, very quickly this, we don't know why at the time, but this changes her whole demeanor. She decides to leave her boyfriend, stay in Madrid. Um, and, um, 
I, I don't want to give much away. She decides mm-hmm. to do something else. Um, she starts uh, the, she starts writing out her story, and we hear a lot of voiceover, and then we get a flashback to her um, over the last, um, I don't know, 30 or so years. It goes back to mm-hmm. the 1980s when we see her um, uh, first job as a teacher and then leaving that job to... Um, be a housewife to her fisherman husband and having a daughter and sort of, it just sort of, um, uh, it, it just sort of tells the story of her life and it has some very specific things, uh, that I don't want to get into, not cause it's like a twisty kind of movie because when I saw, when I see a movie fresh, I feel like I want to preserve that, mm-hmm. uh, for people. Um, so it's just a, a look at the last 30 years of this woman's life. Um, and it's beautifully shot as all Pedro Amador movies, uh, tend to be, um, and very colorful with the sense that, uh, you get the sense that all the colors probably mean something. Um, <laughs> again, that's mm-hmm. something that happens in all the Almodovar films, but, uh, it, it explores the sort of cycles across over generations, um, that we see, um, and not just generations, but things that people behaviors, people pick up from other people and repeat themselves. And, um, I think it, it it explores how we often don't realize that we get so hurt by the way that we are treated by other people and at the same time fail to recognize the way that we might be doing this same exact thing to someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, that seems to be a big, big part of it. Uh, it's a uh, beautiful and heartfelt and uh, achingly sympathetic uh, movie. Uh, also one of the best I've seen this year. All right. Uh, I saw a new film. I saw Clint Eastwood's Sully. And it is good. At times it is very good. Um, When it breaks into great, it is almost invariably a function of Tom Hanks. um, Who, I mean, obviously Tom Hanks has always been a great actor. But there's just something, in the last few years, he has really... I don't know what I don't know what it is like as a person. I don't know if he's been digging deeper um, because, of course, he's great in Castaway. He's great in Saving Private Ryan. And he's great in Philadelphia. Like he's a, he's he's always been a great actor. But again, there's just something I don't know if he's maybe more introspective, or I think maybe he's trying to embrace quiet a mm-hmm. little bit more. Um, I don't know, but like between like Captain Phillips and then I like a lot of what he does in um, Saving Mr. Banks. Uh, and then in this, you know, he's playing a very stoic guy who is obviously dealing with PTSD in the midst of being booked on Letterman and uh-huh. that sort of thing. And so there's some really interesting things going on with his performance. And but I think the best moment of the film, and it's a moment you don't see much in movies. And that's you know, for all the for for everything that people say about Clint Eastwood, and 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 I think I'm probably on board with a lot of it. Uh, he does, there, there are certain, and, and this also might be a function of the, the screenplay, um, but there are almost always, there's almost always like one or two notes uh, that Eastwood will get out of an actor or out of a character that you just don't see much. Like, you're not a big fan of American Sniper, mm-hmm. but that scene at the mechanics yeah, that's is not a scene you see very often. Yeah. Um, and there is a moment here in this film after 
the uh, the big hearing. There have been a number of like smaller interviews and stuff, but now there's this big hearing to see if this whole thing could have been avoided. Um, and there comes a moment when uh, when they actually listen to the audio from this this plane crash or water landing. Pardon me. Um, and after hearing it, we're studying both Sully and his co-pilot played by Aaron Eckhart. We're studying their faces and he, and Tom Hanks says, uh, I need to excuse myself for a moment. And he leaves and Aaron Eckhart goes with him and they Mm -hmm. just step into the hallway. And I won't say what happens in that hallway, except it's the exact opposite of what you think it, it could be. And it's so exhilarating to see characters, behave in a way that you don't see very often and to see actors play those notes wonderfully. Um, there are other elements of the film that I really like. One thing that I just, you know, I think just by the nature of what Sully is and the fact that Tom Hanks was in it, I found myself expecting something like Captain Phillips, which is to say very much focused on this one guy, which, mm-hmm. you know, it's called Sully. Right, it makes yeah. sense. But as far as structure, it's a lot closer to another Tom Hanks movie, which is Apollo 13. There's a lot. It really focuses on the num- how many other people played a role oh. in making this work, in, in making sure people got out okay. Um, if, you know, we, have, we deal with the air traffic controller for a moment. We deal with um, you know, the Coast Guard and, and all of this. And, it's, and then Sully himself at some point says, we were all at our best that day. Um, and honestly, it's a movie that at no point, like, I mean, I remember the, the coverage about like, Mm -hmm. you know, the miracle on the Hudson, that sort of thing. And at no point did I make the connection between that and nine 11, because this was a, just a thing that happened. Nine 11 was very purposeful, Mm -hmm. but this is a film that absolutely understands that it's only eight years later. There was a plane thing Mm. in New York. And from and there are people saying like, oh well, you should have tried to turn back to LaGuardia, and he never actually says this. But I mean, we do see like fantasies of and bad dreams he has of he tried to turn back to LaGuardia and he run and he destroys a building mm-hmm. or something like that. And there's just and he never comes out and says it. There's only one real direct reference, and some other character says it. But it's almost like I would rather land in the water incorrectly mm-hmm. like like you know when i when i conceivably could have made it back to an airport i'd rather do this than put my city through put this city through this again uh even if that's like even if there's the the slightest percent chance that i could you know that that it could go wrong even if it's more likely that it'll go right like i'd rather i'd rather do this other thing and just avoid this completely because there are moments when the plane is flying low, and even though it's not in danger of hitting any buildings, mm-hmm. a plane is flying low, and it just cuts to people in skyscrapers, and they just look out the window, and there's just this look of like mm-hmm. horror and resignation. There's a lot more to this movie yeah. than yeah, I don't expected. Don't say anymore. I want, okay, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I want to see it. I wanted to see it to begin with. Now I want to see it even more. Okay. I will say, Okay. I do want to say, you mentioned that it's a water landing, not a plane crash. Yes. Was the plane, like, 
is that plane still in service in service? <laughs> no, it, it's not. It's there's, and that's the thing is like, and, they, and, they, and they I know that, out, I understand yeah. the, the plane's not still in the Hudson. Right. right? No, they, they got they it out. It out yeah. But I'm saying they didn't like, you know, get the shop back out, clean it up and put it <laughs> right. back on. The, in you know rotation. I, can't, I can't guarantee. Okay. Uh, but I do think that there's uh, there, de- there does seem to be a difference. One is that like, they landed in the water yeah, yeah. No, and everybody I, stood up and got out. Yeah. I definitely you know? see it as a, as a difference. I was just yeah. wondering if that means that they're like, cause those things are expensive is all I'm saying. <laughs> like if the thing's still usable, maybe they still use it. All right. Um, final movie for me. Um, I watched a, I think fantastic, but uh, mostly very perplexing movie from 19, 1973 directed by Victor Arise. I'm not sure if that's right. It's called the spirit of the beehive. Hmm. Have you seen it? I have not. I've heard great things. It is fantastic, I think, but I need to watch <laughs> it again. It's on. It's on. If you have a uh, Hulu membership, it's 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 free because uh, it's. I mean, not free because you're paying for the membership, but uh, mm-hmm. you can watch it on Hulu. Um, so the the story it takes place in uh, 1940 or early 1940s. I'm not sure. Um, in a small Spanish town, and. Um, the very first thing that happens is that a traveling, you know, like used to happen at the time that guy would, the way you'd see movies is that there was a traveling guy with a projector and a movie reel and he'd show up and it'd be in the church or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you'd pay to get in and that's how you saw a movie. And so the very first thing that happens, is this guy shows up with Frankenstein and all the townspeople go and watch Frankenstein. Um, and there's these two girls who are sisters and the one girl is, has all these questions for her older sister. Like why, did, why did Frankenstein kill that little girl? Why did the people kill Frankenstein? Like, why did this happen? And so the older sister, like little kids tend to do, just like fucks with the little sister and says, uh, he's actually not dead. In fact, Frankenstein is real. He lives in this town. He's a spirit. If you go out to this place, he's, she's like, I do it all the time. I talk to him all the time. You can go out, and if he <laughs> likes you, you can see him and talk to him. And so this girl, of course, becomes obsessed with finding yeah. uh, Frankenstein in her small town um and uh i don't want to give much more away but it's a a very very quiet but beautiful um movie about a family who have even though they it's you know mother father and two daughters they're Mm -hmm. all together but they've clearly been torn apart or they're not at their best because of the recent civil war um which I feel like half of the movies I see that come from Spain mm. um, deal with the 1930s and 1940s and the yeah. Civil War and the immediate aftermath of it, uh, which is not a complaint. Um, uh, it just clearly is uh, really weighs on their psyche, mm-hmm. you know, their national psyche. Kind of like how every Chilean movie you see is about Pinochet in some way or another. Um, it, it's clearly like this is a huge thing. Yeah. That, like Anyway, um, uh, so I, I don't want to go too much more into the movie because I'm, I need to watch it again. I'm not really sure what to say about it, uh, but it's uh, I think it's pretty beautiful and also weird. And it is weird to have this uh, clearly very um, artsy movie um, be so inspired by Frankenstein. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, uh, which I mean, Frankenstein is an artsy movie too, but it's a yeah. huge crowd-pleasing horror movie and then you've got this like ponderous um 
art movie <laughs> yeah. uh, inspired by it. I think that's fantastic. It's, uh, this is not exactly the same, but I like the, it's, it's almost like uh, in true romance where they keep bringing up Dr. Zhivago. Was that what it was or was it uh, reanimator? Uh, well, reanimator, they bring up an American beauty, right? I think it's Dr. Zhivago. Um, I think that's like a code, uh, in true romance. Oh, that's right. Is that what it is? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I the, think um, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's a it's a code name for cocaine. Yeah, yeah. That's. I think it is Doctor Shivago. It's been a long time since I've seen that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. I thought you were going to talk about Sonny Chiba. How they talk about Sonny Chiba? Oh, uh, no. Hong Kong movies. Well, that sounds. Given who wrote it, that yeah. makes a lot more sense. But I like Doctor uh, Doctor Shivago doesn't seem like Tarantino's uh, go to type reference. Yeah, I bet he likes it though. Sure. Yeah. All right. So Spirit of the Beehive, that's my last movie. You got one more movie? I do. Uh, it's a rewatch, but as tends to happen when you rewatch a movie you love, you'll notice new things about it and you'll think about it differently. Uh, it is Moneyball. Uh, okay. Jen and I went to see the Dodgers game, and as tends to happen when I go to a, ba- a baseball game, I immediately want to watch Moneyball uh, <laughs> afterwards. Um, Not, I don't know. Bull Durham, Lee no. Own. No. For the Love of the Game. Uh, Didn't um, see that one. Neither did I. Um, trying to think of all the classic baseball movies the natural eight men out field of dreams no it's weird how half the movies i named have kevin costner in them well he likes uh he likes that game tin cup i know that's not baseball that's a good movie but the uh i do think that just bennett miller as a filmmaker just i don't know first off i like what he does with darkness when i think of foxcatcher i think of a very dark movie Mm -hmm. and i think about that with um, Moneyball. As I was watching it, I just had, I realized how much of it is in shadow. Um, and even, even when the, uh, he's shooting the baseball games themselves and, you know, everybody's just under these giant lights, um, you come to realize like, well, this is taking place at night most of the time in the film. It's taking place at night. And so where the lights aren't, it's going to drop to blackness. Uh, so just cinematically, I feel like it's it's a much more visually interesting movie than it needs to be. Hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, and there are many, there are a lot of shots of, of Brad Pitt in his truck driving around alone at night. And there are times, and there are shots where the only thing visible is just the slight outline of light, of light on his face. Everything else is pitch black. Uh, it's a really... It's a surprisingly gorgeous movie, but that's interesting. Yeah, when I think of that movie, those aren't the shots that I think of because I think of it. So much of it takes place in like offices with flu- yeah. fluorescent lighting, yeah. and I still think that stuff is composed well. Yeah, um, I don't remember who shot the movie. Um, I don't recall either. But um, I do like all that stuff. But yeah, I, fr- I, I don't think about those more dynamic. Uh, yeah, shots. But that's the thing is, those shots are almost always reserved for Brad Pitt alone. Uh, but that's the thing is it's a very lonely movie all around, uh, whether it be shots of, of Jonah Hill when he first walks into the stadium. It's these long shots of him just walking in in these lo- giant empty corridors mm-hmm. uh, or Brad Pitt afterwards. It's a very quiet, a very lonely movie, which is not something you would say very much, uh, very often about a, an Aaron Sorkin penned uh, script. But um, But on top of everything else, I just... You know, I definitely got an image of uh, Billy Bean as obsessed, as a guy who's just constantly chasing this thing. And I knew he, this is like, 
like he's never going to let things go. Like I recognize that beforehand, but now when I think in terms of what came before and what came after, what came before was Capote, what came after was Foxcatcher. If you watch these three movies in a row, uh, you see characters that are driven by things that nobody else understands and that they, but that, you know, in Foxcatcher, we have like these very strange, grotesque people. In uh, Capote, we've got this very outlandish guy. Whereas everything about Billy Bean, as played by movie star Brad Pitt, mm-hmm. is that he looks like he's got everything together. Like he's in great physical shape. He's a good looking guy. He makes a great deal of money. He's going to be fine. But underneath all of that is just this thing pushing him and pushing him and pushing him to the point that, and this is a thing that we've talked about before, is that. As you watch the movie, you see it certainly doesn't have a traditional arc. It just looks like, you know, here it's like, oh, here's a here's a benchmark and they reach it. And then here's another one and they reach it, you know, and it's just like obstacles that they just keep conquering. And and I and I as I watch, I'm like, yeah, I guess that that's not much of a way to like set up stakes. But then I thought, yeah, but the stakes are that it doesn't matter how many obstacles he overcomes. Uh-huh. He's never going to be happy. And the one, th- the one thing that he doesn't have is the thing he's always going to say, once I get that, I'll be happy, which is he wants to win a world series. That's his thing. Mm-hmm. And once he wins that, he'll fi- he'll finally feel like he's got it. But my guess is were that to happen, there'll just be one other thing. Right. Um, and that notion, it really comes through in Brad Pitt's performance. Uh, and just how generally sad and distant he looks in the film. Uh, and it's just a, and also, I mean, the film is called Moneyball. So there's definitely a, a, an eye towards finance, but just this idea that, I don't know, given, given uh, the economic state of the country for the last, you know, I'd say 10 years at this point, um, and the film takes place in 2002, but it was made uh, in 2011. Mm-hmm. And so reflections on little Oakland against the giant Yankees and so many other teams that all they, they just throw money at the problem mm-hmm. and they'll get everything they want. Mm-hmm. And Oakland, like they, they, you know, they, they make these, re- they manufacture these really great players who then just get offered a lot of money and they get, the New York Yankees and just from a class structure, uh, it's a very interesting dynamic to, to explore. There's, so I was very happy. I saw it, uh, again. Um, it's a movie that I do return to every once in a while. Um, it was your favorite movie that year. It was my favorite movie that year. And there are times where I'm like, eh, I feel bad about it because it's, there's such a populism to it, but I don't think, I don't think Bennett Miller makes those kind of movies. I think this is a very, it's a very it's a very digestible movie, but if you actually want to return to it, there's a lot more going on. Uh, we can move on. I'm sorry. Yeah, let's get into TV yeah. and then wrap this up. Um, I've been loving uh, Atlanta on FX, which okay. is the Donald Glover um, show. I don't know if you've uh, watched any of it or heard much about I've, I've it. I've heard about it. Yes. Um, yeah, it's uh, increasingly like we're getting. I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's right to call these dramedies, but we're getting these half hour shows Mm. that aren't really comedies, but you wouldn't call it a drama either because um, much like Louie, which is also on FX, there's a a lot of 
absurdism in yeah. Atlanta, but it's also a, uh, a show that is very, uh, heavy and well attuned to the, the kind of story it's, it's telling and rooted in the place that it is. And, um, the, the people it's, it's about, which are people who are, um, hustling, who are scraping, who are poor mostly, mm-hmm. um, and trying to, uh, trying to come up, uh, with what, you know, based on what they have, uh, uh, I don't know if you know the story. Donald Glover plays uh, someone who is a, uh, a Princeton dropout who is now essentially homeless, but he go he he stays with his um, the mother of his daughter, um, even though they're not together. Um, yeah. He mostly stays with her. Sometimes stays at home. Uh, sometimes stays with his cousin, who is a rapper uh, named Paperboy, who has a lot of. Uh, potential who has a lot of heat who might be might be something and so donald glover uh positioned himself as paperboy's manager and so basically you've got donald glover paperboy and you've got uh paperboy's best friend darius who's um largely comic relief but also in this most recent third episode uh fourth episode sorry it's three weeks but the first week they did two so this most recent fourth episode uh darius uh who's the stoner comic relief also had the absolute sweetest moment of the show hmm. um probably of the show so far it was very sweet um and then you've got don glover's uh uh the mother of his kid i keep wanting i don't know what it is it's not his girlfriend because they're not together no. but uh yeah uh his ex-girlfriend i guess uh those are your four main characters um but uh i've uh, i've rarely seen a show so much of tv is about i think because there's a certain aspirational quality like so much of tv especially sitcoms about people who for whom they're not necessarily rich but often money is not an issue because you know it's a sitcom you don't want to have to worry about that there are so few tv comedies that have gotten what it's like to be struggling mm. uh i would say roseanne, roseanne is the one that always comes to mind but um this one is a more uh, a different uh equally specific i guess milieu being that it's um a young black man uh with no with no job um uh scraping by but also some things that you know as a guy who used to be a broke uh former college student like some mm-hmm. things that i recognize um that sort of that feeling in your gut when you're taking a date to dinner and you aren't sure if you can afford it. No. Um, that's definitely some, <laughs> somewhere that I've been. Uh, and so there's a lot of great, really, um, uh, really sharp observational stuff. Um, and it's a show that cares about all its characters equally. But like I said, it also has, uh, absurdism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fantastic. It's, uh, it's my favorite thing I'm watching right now. He, Donald Glover is a creative force behind it, right? Yeah. He's the creator, okay. showrunner, star executive producer he's it's his it's his louis in a way and i'm intrigued by you know this notion that uh there's absurd absurdism to it Mm -hmm. considering how much time he spent with dan Harmon, like and the idea with you know on community and the idea of of having a show with a lot of heart but also having a lot of absurdity at the same um, time let me double back then because I feel like I'm giving the wrong impression. Maybe okay. I shouldn't say absurdism. Maybe I should say surrealism. Okay. Well, yeah, that's fine too. Um, yeah. Like in the very first episode, there's a tense, uh, showdown guns are involved. Um, and all of a sudden, uh, Darius played wonderfully by the key Stanfield says, 
I'm having deja vu. Deja vu. Hold on, where's that wolf? And he looks over, and there's a wolf across the street, and he's like, yeah. there he is. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind yeah. of surrealism I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah, I've heard great things about it. Yeah. Um, so I'm two episodes into this season of South Park. Last season, so for the last few seasons, they've had ar- like uh, season arcs. Mm-hmm. You know, it's been a lot more serialized. And it's been very interesting to see that. Last season, they decided to really take on, you know, PC culture and that sort of thing. Uh, and they, there definitely was a, a sense that they're just sitting back and laughing at just the sheer amount of absurdity. I think they're mad now. Oh, okay. I think there's a, a real, like, mad maybe in like an old curmudgeon kind of way, but also... You know what? You know what happened since then? Oh, the political race mm-hmm. is what's happening. It's not all about that. That's part of it. But there's just just the tone. Uh, everything is just everyone's just so. You know, you you have um, you have. There's like a, a, a an internet troll that everybody assumes is Cartman, uh, not without. Uh reason um and he's just like trolling like all the like women and girls in town and so they decide they're going to take it out on all the all the boys uh in the school and so the boys are like okay well this isn't us so we need to stop him so that they won't take this out on us so they single out cartman who spoilers is not the internet troll um and everything about it i mean you know, they rather humorously uh, in the in the show equate, you know, um, sort of unplugging from online, whether it be like quitting Twitter or whatever, um, or not being able to do that. They definitely equate that with death mm-hmm. to such a degree that uh, the this first the the second episode starts with this young girl uh, looking at like dealing with like internet, like cyber bullying, walking out to the middle of a bridge, mm-hmm. um, looking at her phone and then like the camera like pans up and then you just hear a splash. And then the next scene you, you know, there's like cops at the, at the school and all that. And then it turns out all she did was quit Twitter and throw her phone in the, in the river. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean in like for a moment. Yeah. It's pretty heavy. It's really heavy. And and also the scene where the boys decide they're going to turn on Cartman is genuinely disturbing. Like they, they really seem like there's there's still a lot of funny in there. Uh specifically the way they incorporate the band Boston into this episode into the most uh-huh. recent episode. But like there's it's not merely that they're trying to do something, it's that the tone is is changed. There's a dire quality to it now that is where it's a hard laugh. Like you, you not merely you're laughing hard, but it's a very, there's like a real bite to it. That's not always pleasant. You know, it's like, it's like very bad things kind of laugh. Yeah. Hopefully better. You know? Yes, absolutely. But you know what I mean? Like where it's just like, fuck man, I don't, I don't like this, but I'm laughing. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, uh, I, I can't imagine where the s- season is going to go from here. Uh, all right. Finally for me, um, and unfortunately not for you, apparently project runway is back. Yeah. I thought sorry. you got the bug last season and, uh, here well, we are with some you. of it is the fact that like we, 
the the various services that we've used to watch these things we okay. are no longer subscribed to. Ah, okay. That's a big part of it. Um well, yeah, I, I don't really know what to to say. Um just Project Home is back and I'm glad that it's back because I I like the show. I feel like it's gone through a lot over its time. It's become a different show and it had a sort of middle period where it wasn't very good for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was never terrible, but it uh, was less good. And now it's sort of come to terms with the fact that it's never going to be what it was at first. Um, and it's uh, a more confident. It's. I feel like the show the last couple seasons and now is more is more confident in itself than it has been since it was on Bravo. Um, you know, it's on Lifetime now mm-hmm. and has been for like almost ten years, I think, um, uh, or maybe almost ten seasons. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it more, I guess, as the show goes on so far, we've just had the, the one episode, um, and, uh, I'm sure something noteworthy happened, but I don't remember. Okay. Uh, so, Oh yes, oh. I'm sorry. There was something I wanted to talk about okay. that I wished you had watched for this because you talked about the thing that you liked about when you started watching Project Runway was that it was a depiction of people being creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this episode, this first episode had something that has happened from time to time where the whole time during the, 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 the building of the, you know, the construction and while they're working on their, their looks for the, the episode, the storyline that's emerging is that, oh my God, look at that thing he's making. That's amazing. He's obviously the one to be like, everyone feels like we got to live up to this guy. And these like, he made these perfect pants that are, yeah. that are awesome. And then all the judges hate it. Hmm. <laughs> and it happens from time to time, and it's always so fascinating to see how a room full of the artists yeah. um, can all feel and feel sure about uh, how one thing's going to do. And um, for whatever reason, you know, yeah. it didn't. Lo- it looked different under different light, or hmm. the artist or the judges are. I mean, I, I I I hate to be ageist about it. The judges are generally older than the contestants, and yeah. I think um, I, I don't think I'm being ageist. I do think that aesthetics and tastes uh, are going to be different. Well, um, and I think they're more involved in the actual industry and I think that will play a role right. in how they think of things. They, yeah. they might think of it from a, not merely from selling or a commercial standpoint, but I feel like that will creep in there. Yeah. Whereas when you're the artist, you can do whatever you want and it all <laughs> right. sounds great. Uh, so yeah, that was the thing I wanted to uh, run by you. Okay. Uh, go that ahead. Sounds interesting. You've got one more thing. Survivor has started. Oh, okay. And uh, you, are, you already have a whole podcast to talk about this. Which we weren't going to do up until a few hours before the episode. But uh-huh. enough people actually said, hey, are you going to start? Are you going to do this season again? I wasn't going to because I, I had to cut something loose because of school. Back by popular demand. Back by popular demand. And uh, this season is, uh, you know, they're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for like themes. So this is, oh, a, yeah. this is a Gen X versus Millennials, uh-huh. which... David, according to the show, you and I would be Gen X. No way. Wikipedia says 1980 to 1994 is millennials. So that's you and me. But then one of my listeners said that uh, in the class that he teaches, he says that uh, Gen X is through 1982. Yeah, there's no way. Uh, Yeah. Because I remember when Gen X was a thing and me being like, Oh, I wish I were like Gen X sounds so cool. I wish, yeah. I wish I were Gen X. I know I'm not. Yeah. But that's the thing is like, we're, we're at this, at just the right age. And there's a couple contestants that are that as well. And they definitely seem to be 
the fact that they're on the cusp does seem to inform the way they approach both uh, tribes. Um, because I'd be pissed. You'd be pissed? If I was... I'm not Gen X. I'm a millennial. I feel like a millennial. Do you feel like a millennial? Yes, very okay. Much. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's probably a good thing. Okay. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, What's always fascinating to me, and, and I'll, you know, D- Jen and I did record an episode of Worth Playing For. You can find that at battleshippretension.com. Um, but what always fascinates me is anytime they do these themed seasons where it's like, you know, brains, bronze, and beauty, or uh, white, cla- uh, white collar, blue collar, no collar, which is like, you know, the oddballs and stuff. Anytime you put a label on somebody, there will always be people that take that label and really use it to sometimes create solidarity, but other times they just, they feel like they need to live up to something. And it's just like, the sooner you get rid of that label, the more flexible you're going to be. But there are people that just cannot, um, you know, like blue collar. They said like, let's show them how blue collars do. It's like, or you can just try to play survivor. Yeah. (laughs) Which is probably a better call. Yeah. Um, so it's stuff like that, which is, which is at one point off putting, but at the same time, if you do it right, there's a solidarity there and you, and it creates, it can create more animosity. So like this generational thing, which undoubtedly I'm sure the producers are trying to stoke that fire mm-hmm. a little bit, but uh, undoubtedly you have the older people talking about the, how millennials are, you know, and the millennials admittedly completely embody the, the stereotype. Uh, you know, when it comes time to build their shelter, they build a good portion, like the gen Xers build a good shelter. The millennials, do, they start to do okay, and then they decide, hey, let's all uh, go for a swim. And so then they go for a swim, and then it gets darker faster than they thought it was going to, So, and they haven't built a roof yet <laughs> on their shelter. But see, how come the Gen Xers aren't um, living up to their reputation of being like too jaded to build a shelter? And that's the thing. You and I think of Gen X as 1995, like Ethan Hawke, and my go-to is like Janine Garofalo, like yeah. disaffected. yeah. But it's this was shot in I, in twenty fifteen I assume uh, they're all they're all adults now yeah you so, know? Uh, and they've got they have jobs and they've got shit to do yeah so this basically basically what this throws into relief is relief is that these generational labels don't actually mean anything after a certain point no um, after a certain point I guess but uh, I still would not want to be thought of as a Gen Xer. Which is so funny because when I was a kid, that's all I wanted. I thought they were so cool. Yeah, it's I got to, X in the name. Yeah, I wanted to go to Woodstock 94. Um, well, that's not the bad one. Woodstock 99 was the bad one. Okay. Uh, Woodstock 94 was just brought to you by Pepsi. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> <laughs> Which is bad enough in and of uh, itself. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, I definitely, uh, I on the way, yeah, I'm, I, I'm contradicting myself because on the one hand i'm like yeah i'm a millennial on the other hand i'm like i know it doesn't mean anything yeah it really it really doesn't and but i think that's that can be something i I don't care much about random things like that things that Mm -hmm. i have no control over like you know i I identify like it's a much bigger like a true pisces (sighs) i was gonna i that's something i was thinking and by the way good for you knowing i'm a pisces Um, i I don't know know what you are capricorn Uh, nope Taurus? Nope. Libra? No, Virgo. Virgo. That's you all over. Mm-hmm. I don't 
know what any of them are. <laughs> Scorpio. I like that one because that sounds like a, Is that really one? I think so. Okay. There's a Scorpio, which is, uh, you know, my favorite. Uh, I, I think my, firmly my favorite uh, Simpsons episode is the one with Hank Scorpio. Oh, okay. But uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. So right. you can find that at uh, battleshippretention.com. I'm very excited to be back. All right. All right.